Chapter 9 of Citadel of the Star Lords. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of the Star Lords by Edmund Hamilton. Chapter 9 The aerodyne flew high in the black night toward the citadel. Above there were clear stars. Below there were heavy clouds laced with lightning, hiding the earth, hiding the belt and the lines of men who moved in it among the dark trees in the wind and the rain. One full night had passed, and another was drawing to its close. Before the sun went down again it would be all over, one way or the other. Price was in that state of exaltation that comes at a certain point of prolonged tension without rest, where you move a little bit outside your body and above the ground, detached from every normal consideration and everything seems to go with a clear headlong rush, as though a single initiating act has set an inevitable series of reactions going, and all you have to do is keep pace with them. He had not slept much, but he was not tired. The aspect of the citadel roof, the round red circle of the lift and the controls thereof, the symbol marking the proper level, the shape and size and position of the fire control center burned brightly in his mind. Their set and proper sequence did not permit of any obstacles. Sweetbriar sat beside him in the co-pilot's place. He held the shocker in his gnarly hands, and from time to time he turned it over or stroked its smooth and unfamiliar shape. So far he had not had any occasion to use it. He had stood beside Price in a dozen wooden-built towns, helping him harangue a dozen doubtful chiefs or sub-chiefs around the perimeter of the belt. He had not slept much either, but his eye was brilliant and steely as a hawk's. If the sensation of flight frightened him, he had not shown it in any way. The six men of his picking sat quietly in the cabin. They might have been the same six men Price had first met when he landed in the belt, woods rangers, hunters of deer and wild cattle, all speed and muscle, born fighters. They were as lax as idle hound-dogs now, when there was nothing to be done. They too had mastered whatever fear they had had of flying. The storm below was moving rapidly toward the east over a broad front. Price could easily have outflown it, but he did not, only keeping high enough above it to get a sighting on the citadel when it came into visual range. He was grateful for the storm. It seemed like an omen of good fortune. It would cover the advance of the tribesmen from the west, and it would cover his own landing if he paced it properly. A thick night would make it easier to get his attacking party onto the lift, and perhaps even below, before it was realized that they were not Linna's party returning. Poor Linna! He had seen her for just a minute before he left the capital of the Missouris. He had wanted to make sure she was safe and comfortable, and he had wanted to try once more to make her understand how he felt. "'I'm not your enemy, Lina,' he had said. "'Believe that. After this is all over—' "'If you take the Citadel,' she had answered, "'it won't matter who is anybody's enemy. You and I will both be victims of the A. If you don't take it, you'll be dead, and so will your crazy army.' and how long will they let me live after that? Either way, both of us lose." And she had sounded so quietly despairing that he had almost lost heart. 
but not quite. Starshine and the lower flurrings of lightning showed him a gleam of dark metal far down in the night. He spoke to Sweetbriar and pointed. The old man peered, squinting, and the six hunters roused themselves and peered also. "'Don't look like much from here,' one of them said. Price did not dispute him. Perhaps it was just as well for his army of seven not to have too clear a look at the fortress they were planning to invade. He hung for a little time in the high, quiet air, watching the storm-front roll like a wave. When it had almost reached the distant gleam of metal, he said sharply, "'All right, now!' and he dropped the aerodyne whistling down the sky. The wild air-currents caught him, boiling ahead of the storm and over it. For one horrible moment he thought he had lost control of the aerodyne. It pitched and skittered and tossed, throwing him against his seat-belt until his ribs cracked and his flesh felt as though it was cut through. The tribesmen were now frankly and vocally terrified. Then the built-in stabilizers and Prince's own flyer's brain took hold again, and the whirling leaf motion steadied to a rough and racking but controlled descent. He could not see anything now but the solid blackness of the storm-clouds, until the lightning flared and lit the rain-swept barren below with a vivid light, brief but enough to guide him. He had judged carefully, and he let the main wind-drift carry him until the wall of the citadel showed up huge and startling in the glare of a striking bolt. He hung rocking over the roof until another one showed him the painted circle of the lift. Then he set the aerodyne down hard right beside it. There was no need for any talking. The instructions had all been thoroughly discussed before. Price and the seven tribesmen were out and across the intervening few feet of roof and onto the lift and going down before the next flare of lightning broke. The men breathed heavily, their throwing ropes in one hand, their knives in the other. Sweetbriar glanced at the shocker. Then he gave it to Price and unhooked the weighted bolo from his own belt, swinging it gently. There had been no alarm. Price watched the symbols gliding past on the guide-strip. When the right one showed, he pushed the proper stud and waited. The lift stopped. The automatic door slid back. They moved fast, out into the corridor. Only one man was in sight, going somewhere with a sheaf of papers in his hand. He stopped, and his eyes widened and his mouth opened. Price fired the shocker. The man fell down, and the papers scattered all over the floor. Price began to run. His own shoes made a quick, sharp padding on the plastic surface. The moccasins of the hunters made no sound at all. He counted the doors, and then turned for a last glance at Sweetbriar and the men. Their eyes were very bright, and the edges of their teeth showed. Sweetbriar nodded. Price flung open the door. And it was easy, easier than he had dreamed. The four technicians in their uniforms of dull gold turned and stood startled and staring for as long as a man might catch his breath, and that was time enough. Bolos wrapped around three of them like flying snakes and brought them down, and the fourth fell under the shock-beam. "'Shut the door,' said Price, and one of the hunters shut it. Price knocked out the other three with the shocker, and the hunters bound them. There was a rack of sidearms in one wall, with several shockers in it. Price handed them out and then turned his attention to the batteries of firing studs. 
the hunter stood staring at the moving pictures of the stormy belt reflected in the scanner screens, until Sweetbriar sent them to guard the door. There were service hatches below the waist-high control panels. Price got one open and studied the wiring, panting more with excitement than exertion. It was only a few minutes until the prearranged time of attack. But he must not trip the firing relays accidentally in trying to deactivate them. He was afraid to start pulling wires indiscriminately. But where the individual leads ran back to join the primary cable, they passed through a series of switches. It seemed logical to Price that these were safety cutoffs to be used during maintenance, and that they would cut off the nameless destructive engines on the roof. He had nothing better to go on, and time had almost run out. He opened one of the switches and glanced swiftly at the screens. Nothing happened. He flipped open the others fast and ripped the wires loose from the board. Then with a metal chair he smashed the studs. As he finished, Sweetbriar shouted suddenly, "'There they come, and right on time!' Price, sweating, looked up. Sweetbriar and the hunters were eagerly gazing at the screens. They showed the storm-swept belt, and they showed small dark figures in it, hundreds of them, thousands, tribesmen running toward the citadel. An alarm bell rang somewhere in the citadel. Instantly other bells echoed it, a distant confusion of alarms. "'Out of here fast!' Price cried. "'This is the first place the Verna will be coming. If we can get down through, we can help the others.' They ran back out of the room back down the corridor past the unconscious man who still lay on the floor. Whatever happened now, the tribesmen pouring across the belt were safe from the weapons on the roof. Without warning, the lift door opened right in front of them, and five green-clad Verna came spilling out of it. There was no chance to use shockers or bolos either. They were so close to each other that it was hands and fists. They struggled, gripping and striking at each other, their feet slipping on the smooth floor, with the clamor of bells in the background. A new note was added to that clamor. A dim sound of yelling voices, many of them surging up from the lower part of the citadel. "'The tribes are in!' shouted Sweetbriar. "'By God, I—' He was knocked back by a flailing green arm. His Verna antagonist scrabbled to get his shocker out of his belt. Price desperately kicked out at his own personal foe and banged him back against the metal wall. He saw the silver head bang the wall, and the man sagged at the knees. Price rushed and knocked up the shocker now leveled at Sweetbriar. The hunters yelped, their eyes blazing. It was their kind of a fight. They liked it. After a sullen lifetime, they were using their fists on the Star-Lords, and they liked that. The surge of sound from levels underneath told of a far bigger melee down there, spreading through the citadel. And then that sound, and the small personal noises of their own staggering fight, were cut across by a brutal authoritative new sound. A hooting, loud and commanding, getting louder by the second, braying like the voice of doom through the vast iron pile. The two Vernas still left on their feet tried to turn and run down the corridor. The hunters' bolos brought them down quickly. Sweetbriar's leathery old face was wild and startled as he got to his feet. "'What the hell?' "'That's the Verna's big battle-station siren,' Price said. "'They're a bit late with it. Come on.' 
he and the hunters began to look for stairs, racing swiftly along the deserted corridors. They found some at last and sped downward, level after level. Bellowing, deafening in volume now, the siren kept hooting. It could not drown out the tumultuous uproar that filled the lower levels. Price and the hunters were met suddenly by a mass of tribesmen boiling up from the ground level. They were screaming, laughing, capering in the halls, dragging with them one or two captured Verna, triumphant victors dancing down a hated power under their moccasined feet. Their hair and beards and their clothing were still dripping wet with rain. They swept up Price and Sweetbriar and the six others in their advancing front, pounding their shoulders, hugging them. "'We did it! We got em! they cried. "'We took the Citadel!' "'Is it all over?' asked Price incredulously. "'So soon?' "'That mighty caterwauling did it,' said a red-bearded man. "'All of a sudden they quit fighting and began to run, like it was a signal. But they couldn't get away from us. I heard they got old Aaron himself down there, in a big room, cussing and crying fit to bust.' "'Where's Sawyer?' somebody shouted, and Sweetbriar took up the cry. Price said, "'Somewhere on this level, I think. Get a Verna that speaks English and make him show you. It'll save time.' He pushed on through them to the stairs and fought his way down. He wanted to see Aaron. He wanted to see the pride of the Citadel humbled, broken. Tribesmen rioted through the corridors, smashing things like happy children. They directed him to a vast sunken room that Price knew must be the very heart and soul of the Citadel, its reason for being. It was an overpowering place of screens and towering panels and complex equipment. But these screens looked far beyond Earth, showing starry spaces, burning suns and unimaginable dark abysses. From here the Verna had watched the whole sector of outer space and these complex controls must be the triggers of the mighty missile batteries outside the Citadel, the weapons that could strike fast and far into the void. Here there was a guard to keep out the roisterers. The soberer of the tribesmen had a sensible concern for the possible results of tampering with these incomprehensible but obviously mighty powers. They were afraid the whole Citadel might blow up with them in it. A few technicians were still being hustled out as Price entered. A number of the chiefs were in here, and Aaron was with them, but he was neither cursing nor crying. He was standing between two muscular tribesmen, facing the chiefs, and his face held such an agony of despair and terror that Price was shaken by it. "'What must I do?' he was saying. "'To make you understand. That warning came from our fleet.' The A have invaded it in the Centaurus Gulf and are sweeping in towards Earth. If we don't defend the Citadel—' He broke off as he saw Price come up. Then he said bitterly, "'I congratulate you. Few men can say that practically single-handed they destroyed a world.' One of the chiefs asked Price, "'Is Sawyer with you?' Price shook his head. "'They have gone to free him now.' He'll be here in a few minutes." "'Oh, my God!' said Aaron softly. "'Don't let them free the A. Even two of them at large here. We'd have no hope at all, with their fleet coming.' He looked at Price, 
and Price's confident scorn drained slowly out of him, leaving a nasty void. Nobody, Verna or not, could counterfeit what he saw in Aaron's eyes. "'Do you wish me to go on my knees and beg?' whispered Aaron. "'I'll do it. Only go up and stop them from opening that bulkhead.' And Price knew suddenly that he must do that. He turned and ran back along the hall and up the stairs, pushing and kicking his way past the knots of tribesmen who wanted to congratulate him for what he had done, and all the way there was a chill unpleasant thing riding his back, and its first name was Doubt and its second Fear. Was it possible, just barely possible, that the Verna had been telling the truth all the time? Uproar on the prison level guided him through a maze of corridors, to an obligado of breaking doors. He turned a corner. Burr and Twist and Sawyer were free. They formed part of the forefront of a group that was swarming down the hall systematically breaking down the cell doors. Two Verna guards lay prone, and a third man, probably the English-speaking guide, was trying to crawl away unnoticed, his face ashen with fear. The bulkhead was open. A man's voice neighed suddenly in terror. Then another and another, and the tribesmen were rolled back upon themselves as by the blow of a great hand, as the fore-edge of the group turned and burst its way to the rear. There was a moment of wild panic. Price stood flat against the wall and watched brave men run by him sobbing. And then a wave of force, so cold and alien, that it revolted the last small atom of his human self, hit his mind like the backblast of a bomb. Two dark forms stood in the corridor. They were taller than men. At first Price thought they were shrouded in black like old monks, with cowls over their heads. But as they moved he saw that the cowls and the floating draperies edged with a thin translucent gray were their own substance, quivering, shifting, gliding around some unguessable central core of being. He could not see whether they had faces under the black folds, and eyes in the faces, but he could feel them watching him. He could feel their minds stripping him and tearing away his feeble defenses, leaving his own mind naked and helpless before them. And these were the A. These were the big lie of the Verna. Only they were real. He could not stand them any longer. He ran. They all ran. It was a compulsion. Run, cry panic, clear the citadel, and get away. He looked back, and the A were behind them, gliding soundlessly along the hall. Run, get away. And then Price and the others, fleeing in the next corridor, collided with the chiefs who were hurrying to find out what had happened. They still had Aaron with them, a prisoner. Out, said Sawyer thickly, his voice a hoarse croak. Get out! Fast! Aaron's voice cracked like a silver whiplash. Yes, run, because they're making you, because their minds are too much for you. Run and let them have the citadel, and when their fleet comes, let them have the earth. That stopped them. The horror they felt at that thought surged up so strong that the frantic compulsion to flee lessened a little. But behind them, Somewhere back in the corridors they would be following. Aaron raged and mocked them. 
We saved you from the A two generations ago, when A ships had smashed your defenses and they were ready to move in. We moved in first, we've held them back, but now you've let them in. So run!" "'Good God!' said Sawyer, his face stricken. "'Then it was all true, what you told us about the A. It was true all the time!' Price did not, like the other Earthmen, have a lifetime's thinking to revise. He grabbed Aaron's shoulders. "'Can we face them?' he cried. "'Can we kill them?' "'They can be killed,' Aaron said. "'Their minds can hold many, but not an unlimited number. If we all rush them, many of us, there is a chance.' Price yelled down the corridors, "'What are you running from? There's only two of them!' We're going back! We're going to pull them down!" The tribesmen, their first horror a little abated, by sheer reaction from shame of their own terror, exploded into sudden rage. "'There's only two of them! Come on!' And then, of a sudden, they were all of them running back down the corridors, jostling, crowding, screaming, Price with Aaron beside him, with old Sweetbriar ahead, with Sawyer shouting in hoarse anger. A mob, not an army, a mob urged forward by its own horror. Around the corner and into the corridor where the two black shapes were gliding fast. And it was like walking into night and death, into bitter black winds and the stabbing of cruel swords, as the might of alien minds blasted at them. Tribesmen screamed and fell, clawing at their own heads. The mass behind forced over them, forced the reeling first wave right into the unimaginable shapes. "'Pull them down!' Price was in the screeching forefront now, and he closed his eyes and struck with his knife at the cloudy darkness of a cowl. A cold like that of outer space struck through him and he staggered, fainting and falling, and his mind closed on the awful sight of packed men swaying and pulling and striking at the two tall cowled shapes, mobbing them beating them down. When Price opened his eyes, he was in another corridor, and old Sawyer was slapping his face with rough hands. "'Yes,' said Sawyer thickly, "'they're dead, and a good many men dead with them, and some others that act like their brains are dead.' He shook his head a little wildly. "'To think it was true all the time!' Whoom! came a deep sound from outside the citadel and then more of them, in quick succession. Boom! 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 Aaron, said Price, getting weakly to his feet. He's down in that room with his men, said Sawyer, and they're turning loose on that A fleet out in space. And now the great missiles from the launchers outside the citadel were going out so fast that the sounds of them could not be counted. Price said, Then you let him? Let him, repeated Sawyer. We asked him. Do you think we want a whole fleet of, of them reaching Earth? By the time Price and Sawyer got down to the missile control room, the deadly messengers were all on their way. Aaron and his men watched the screens and would not turn from them. Price and the tribesmen saw only burning stars and dark space in those screens, and then, finally, a little crackling of pinprick flares running like a swarm of fireflies in the dark void. 
Then nothing. Aaron turned. Sawyer said painfully, Did they? Yes, said Aaron. We caught them. But none too soon. Our fleet out there will mop up any A-ships that survived. He added, with slow weariness, We've won a battle, not a war. The A are many. But this outpost world is safe, and we'll press them back and back." Sawyer looked at Price. Price said, "'Don't be so damned proud. Go ahead and say it.' Sawyer said to Aaron, "'Seems like we were wrong about some things. About you, Verna. We're hoping things will be different between us now.' "'They can be,' Aaron said. "'They will be, if you want it.' The old chief of the Missouris asked, "'Now it's all cleared up. Just who was the traitor among us? Was it Oakes?' For the first time a little smile touched Aaron's face. "'Do you really want to know, now it's over?' Sawyer grunted. "'Guess not.' He looked around the other chiefs and then stuck his gnarled hand out in the oldest gesture of earth, and Aaron took it. Price and Lena stood next day on the roof of the Citadel and watched the tribesmen going home. There was, there had always been, a stiff-necked pride in the men of earth. They went away with their heads up, not looking back. But at the edge of the distant forest there was a face turned and the flash of a hand-wave before they went into the trees. "'They'll come back,' Price said. A few of them at first then more and more to learn. A few years will make all the difference." He thought that the sons of earth and the sons of the stars would together stand upon many far worlds. The long war against the A would end some day, that dark and alien tide would be rolled back, and earthmen would do their share. But that was all to come. Lina was saying earnestly, and the people of your own hidden colony in the West, they will join us too?" Price looked at her. "'There is no colony, Lina. I came alone from the West.' "'But your clothes, your plane, where did you come from?' She was startled, her eyes wide and wondering. "'I'll explain all that later. You won't believe it, at first. I hardly do myself.' And, thinking of the strange freak of force and chance that had snatched him from the older earth, Price felt a last pang of nostalgia for that lost world of long ago. That time when, safe on their cozy little planet, men had dreamed of space and stars. It seemed now like a long-dead idol of youth. The earth of those days could never come again. The wider galaxy had crashed in upon it and terrible and magnificent realities had shattered the youthful dreams, and it was a different and sterner planet that was joining the community of star-worlds. Who knew what awaited it on that wider cosmic stage? His hand tightened on Lena's. Of their own tiny part in that vast future he felt suddenly very sure. End of chapter 9 The End of Citadel of the Star-Lords by Edmund Hamilton